During slavery, the Cotton Kingdom reinforced white dominion and land monopoly. Thus, free and enterprising Black communities were a contradiction. Hospitals like Crownsville were one of several solutions for those who seemed unable to survive under the status quo. William Murray was one of the contradictions. Murray was born in 1872, less than a decade after the chains of chattel slavery were severed, and he had achieved more than many Black people were permitted at the time. But he was having violent mood swings and experiencing depression, which his family believed had been brought on by a battle with typhoid fever and his own stubborn refusal to rest. Typhoid, known as a brain fever, appeared to have changed his personality entirely. Murray transformed from a quick-moving, bubbly guy to an angry, unpredictable, and destabilizing force. Even after a diagnosis, he worked without rest. Out of fear for their stability, his children scattered around to various family members' homes. Murray's behavior caused a strain on his family, forcing them to commit him to the facility. When he checked into Crownsville's reception building, he joined 550 other Black patient inmates, including men, women, and a small number of children. There were living quarters across four floors and two large hospital wings. Long stretches of time would pass with no eye contact or conversation from the attendants. It could be freezing cold or overwhelmingly hot inside the ward. Photographs taken only a few years before his arrival show men in tattered workmen's overalls and women sitting in bare day rooms. Many of the patients had no shoes, and in the winter, they were forced to share them. Women wore men's boots. Small kids living among adults wore handouts that were too big. The patients, lucky enough to have layers, were often those working in the fields, sewing in a barn, or cooking in the kitchen. It was a place where a patient could be locked away in isolation for days, where overwhelmed attendants would at times strap wandering patients into heavy oak chairs to restrict their movements, and where people slept in rooms or open porches on thin straw pads. At the time, Crownsville housed every type of patient together, from the criminally insane to those diagnosed with tuberculosis, something that the other white-only asylums were not doing and that many clinicians had warned against. During his arrival and amid the First World War, 275 acres of hospital land were under cultivation thanks to unpaid patient labor. Officials were arranging to use patients in their wartime preparedness plans. For weeks, Crownsville's patients would be placed in emergency squads and would assist in gathering crops for the businesses and farms in the area for no pay. The hospital was a world away from the life he had shared with his wife, Agnes, and their kids on Argyle Avenue in Baltimore. There, the family had a backyard where he kept a coop for carrier pigeons and a study where he prepared his students' lessons. He was a teacher dedicated to encouraging academic excellence in Black children, while much of the world around them told them that they were irreparably inferior. But unbeknownst to him and his family, he would never return to that home or that work again after going to Crownsville. William's daughter, Polly Murray, would go on to become a celebrated legal scholar and civil rights activist. She would remember his absolute obsession with achievement to be a reflection or refutation of the times. In Baltimore, Black men like William weren't expected to be successful. Many were forced to focus on their survival. In the years after Reconstruction, on average, 150 people, almost all Black, were lynched every year in America. 
By 1892, lynchings peaked at 235. From Tulsa, Oklahoma, to Wilmington, North Carolina, and everywhere in between, a constant drum of racial violence bred a state of paranoia in most Black people, a worry that any step deemed wrong by white neighbors or authorities could end with their body dangling from a tree limb. Maryland had never joined the Confederacy, although large parts of the state were openly sympathetic to its cause. Still, the state did not outlaw slavery until 1864, a year after the Emancipation Proclamation outlawed the practice across the Confederacy. In 